Take your copy of Scripture and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 7. Uh, If you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find our passage on page 914. 914. Acts chapter 6, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, and uh, read down through verse 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank You for this passage that is so full of practical wisdom and insight. Lord, we pray that You would help us now by Your Spirit to understand what You have revealed to us in Your Word in this passage of Scripture. And Lord, we pray that we would faithfully apply it to our church body. We pray that increasingly, Lord, we would be the church that You would have us to be for the glory of Your name. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen. Well, I want to say, as we've had the opportunity to publicly acknowledge these deacons this morning, how thankful I am for all our deacons, for their wives and families. And as we are ta- have taken time this morning to publicly acknowledge these men and to praise God for them, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at Acts chapter 6, in which we have the record here of the appointment of deacons in the church in Jerusalem. And this is actually Acts chapter 6, a passage that, while I've been serving as pastor here at Berea, we've returned to again and again and again because it's so helpful in terms of thinking through how the church should be structured, how the church should function, how we should relate to one another as a body of Christ. In fact, I was reading one author who suggested that every Christian leader should read or study Acts chapter 6 at least once every six months because it's so full of wisdom and practical insight in terms of how the church is to be structured and how the church is to function. Well, as we look at this passage again this morning, I want us to see one main point. And what we'll see from our text is that a faithful ministry of the word and deeds unifies and grows the church. A faithful ministry of word and deeds unifies and grows the church. And I want us to see this point in four parts, okay? So this will serve as our outline this morning. First of all, we'll see a church conflict. Secondly, we'll see the ministry of the Word. Third, the ministry of deeds. And then fourth, unity and growth. All right, so let's look first of all at a church conflict that arose here in the church in Jerusalem. Look there in verse 1. 
We read these words, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, as I have mentioned, this church that's, that's here in chapter 6 was located in Jerusalem. And being in Jerusalem, the church was predominantly uh, comprised of Jews. As Luke tells us here, there were two groups of Jews that were present there in the church in Jerusalem. The first group were the uh, Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews. Now, these were Jews that had been heavily influenced by Greek culture. So, linguistically, so the language that they spoke, and culturally, they reflected much of Greek life and culture. And then the second group is the Hebrews. Uh, most of them had, would have had deep roots in Jerusalem, and linguistically and culturally, they were decidedly Jewish. So, so both groups, they're both Jews, but they come from very different cultural backgrounds. And the text says here that a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews. So here's these two different groups that linguistically and culturally are diverse, and now there's a conflict that has arisen between them. And what is the problem? Luke tells us there, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, and here's the issue, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, these widows, they would have been women who were unable to provide for themselves, and they would not have had a close family member who was able to provide for them either. This was before there was kind of a government safety net. There was no social security or that sort of thing. So the church is coming in, right, and seeking to care for their own. The church is seeking to care for these widows. And the Hellenists, they are complaining that their widows are being overlooked, that their widows are being neglected. They're not receiving the necessary provision and care that they need. Now, just quickly here, we should acknowledge right away that sometimes when disagreements and conflicts arise in churches, it's not always because of some great theological debate, right? We might think that to be the case sometimes, but that's not the case at all. Oftentimes, oftentimes tension and conflict arises in a church over very practical and personal matters, relational matters, here we see there's no theological or doctrinal controversy per se, but simply one group feels like they are being neglected, they're being left out. And of course, this still happens today, right? I mean, you could imagine if you were in the church in Jerusalem in the first century, and there was a woman, an older woman who was widowed now, who had made a particular impact on your life. Maybe you had spent most of your life with this individual and you see that other widows that are in a similar situation that she's in are being cared for, are being provided for by the church, but she's being neglected, and you have the suspicion that maybe she's being neglected because of some ethnic or cultural distinction or difference. Maybe there's some bias. Maybe there's some prejudice among the leaders in the church. You can imagine how hurtful that would be. And you can imagine in a situation like this, how this church in Jerusalem that was growing and thriving and the Lord was blessing, how this conflict could have erupted and split the church and undermine what God was doing there in that body. But God in His grace, as we will see as we walk through this passage, turns this sensitive situation, this sin situation which could have easily resulted in, in, in a great deal of conflict, into a gospel opportunity. 
With that in mind, let's see how the apostles seek to resolve this conflict. Look there in verse 2 and we see the ministry of the Word. You see there in verse 2 we read, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching We should not give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. Now, think about again the situation here. Think about the context in which this is playing itself out. This church here in Jerusalem, you can go back on your own and read this for yourself. Read through chapters 1 to chapter 5. But what you'll see is that the church in Jerusalem was growing. It was exploding at a rapid rate. We know from the numbers that are provided in the book of Acts that the church in Jerusalem included at least 5,000 people at this time. There are 12 apostles, or 11 apostles, and there are, because Judas right, betrayed the Lord, there are 11 apostles there, and there are over 5,000 people. We don't know how many widows there would have been, but among 5,000 people, we can imagine that there were a significant number of widows among that number. And the apostles are devoting a great deal of time to the public proclamation of God's Word and to personally ministering God's Word to individuals. So we read in the last verse of chapter 5, and remember the chapter breaks weren't originally in the text, right? Those were included later to help us navigate through the passages easier, but the chapter breaks weren't originally there. And so if you look at the last verse of chapter 5, this flows right into what's happening in chapter 6. We read in chapter 5, verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here you see what the apostles are involved in. Here you see the work of the apostles. Every day they're teaching the Word of God. They're sharing the Scriptures with people. So you have busy apostles, you have a growing, exploding church, and you have needy widows. What is to be done? We see here, don't we, that oftentimes, and and we hear people talk about this growth pains in a church, oftentimes growth can lead to challenges and even conflict in the life of a church. And so how are the apostles going to resolve this? How are the apostles going to deal with this issue? What is to be done? Well, notice that the apostles here, the first thing they do is they go back to first principles. And that's really helpful as you think about trying to deal with a situation. You're trying to figure out what's the resolution. You're trying to bring two groups of people together or two individuals together where there's conflict. And they go back to first principles. It's oftentimes helpful to do so. And going back to first principles, they reestablish this priority of the preaching and teaching of God's Word. That the Word of God must be publicly proclaimed, it must be personally ministered to people, and that that must be done in a spirit of prayer, and that that has to remain of utmost importance in the overall life of the church. So they state it negatively, actually, in chapter 6, verse 2. They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. And then they state it positively in chapter 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so before moving forward to get a solution, they start with this first principle that they must give themselves to the ministry of the Word, to the ministry of prayer, that these two things cannot, cannot be forsaken. They are of utmost importance. Now why? Why would the apostles have such a conviction about this matter? Why would the apostles feel so 
strongly about the fact that they were to give themselves to the ministry of the Word and give themselves to the ministry of prayer. Well, my friends, we know from the Scriptures that it is only by the proclamation of the Word of God, only by sharing the Word of God in in a spirit of prayer with the blessing of God's Spirit that the church is created. Right? How How do people come to faith in Christ? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And how do people hear the Word of Christ? How do they hear the Gospel? Someone must share it. Someone must proclaim it. Someone must speak it. And we are to do so in prayer, in dependence upon God and His Spirit, that He would bless it and that He would create life. And when that happens, the church begins to be established. The church begins to grow. What is the church? The church is a collection of Christians who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for there to be a collection of Christians, in order for there to be individuals who are trusting and believing in Christ, there must be a word of the gospel that is spoken and proclaimed. So the gospel is the foundation of the church. The proclamation of God's word is the foundation of the church. But then, moving along, once you have a group of Christians, what's necessary for that group of Christians to learn and to grow and to become more like Christ and more of what God wants that body of believers to be? Well, we must be sanctified and taught and instructed and transformed by that Word. And so it's by the Word that God continues to make the church what He wants it to be. John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, writes on this point, and this is a really helpful quote. Listen, he says, quote, The church of every generation has to relearn the lesson of Acts 6. There was nothing wrong with the apostles' zeal for God and His church. They were busily engaged in Christ-like, compassionate ministry to needy widows, but it was not the ministry to which they as apostles had been called. Their vocation was the ministry of the Word and prayer. The social care of the widows was the responsibility of others. If today's pastors were to take seriously the New Testament emphasis on the priority of preaching and teaching, not only would they find it extremely fulfilling themselves, but also it would undoubtedly have a very wholesome effect on the church. Instead, tragic to relate, many are essentially administrators whose symbols of ministry are the office rather than the study and the telephone rather than the Bible. End of quote. It's really helpful and I think a good reminder to us all if, if, think about this. If, if what we see from Scripture is that Christ has laid such a tremendous responsibility, such a tremendous priority on the leaders of the church to give themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer, what implications do you think that has for the type of church you should be looking for or the type of church you should commit your life to, you should join? Wouldn't that mean then, by implication, if Christ has placed such a responsibility, such a priority upon the leaders of His church to give themselves to the ministry of the Word, wouldn't that mean then that when you look for a church body to commit yourself to, that the ministry of the Word should be of utmost importance in terms of what you're looking for? That you should be looking for a place where the, where the Word of God... Maybe the preacher's not the most gifted preacher. Maybe he's not the greatest public speaker. Maybe he's not the greatest order. But there is a real intention, intentionality, to understand and unpack and apply the Word of God. Furthermore, as we are a church body and gathering together week after week for worship. I hope that in seeing this principle in Acts chapter 6, it would also encourage us to be more prayerful for the ministry of the Word. 
I, I plead with you to pray for me on a regular basis as I'm preparing and studying for messages and delivering them on Sunday mornings. Encourage you to pray for our Sunday school teachers who are regularly sharing the scriptures with us. Encourage you to pray for our home group leaders who are, when we gather together, they're leading us as we discuss God's word together. And then when we gather around God's word, we should have a sense of expectancy that God has appointed the proclamation and the sharing of his word for our good and for our flourishing and thriving as a local church. If you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, you're not sure what you believe about the gospel, first of all, I just want to say, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. But I also want you to see from this passage that the ministry of the Word of God is actually an expression of God's love to you. We'll see that as we go a little bit further along in the passage. Later on in the passage, we'll see that many priests who were outside of the church, who didn't understand who Christ was, who didn't understand the gospel and hadn't embraced the Christian gospel, that they were brought into the church, that they found life and salvation in Christ through the ministry of the Word. And so, my friends, if you want to learn more about Jesus, if you want to learn more about Christ and about the Christian gospel, if you want to have a living, vital relationship with God, I would encourage you to read your Bible on your own. That's absolutely essential. God will reveal your, Himself to you as you read the Word. But it is also important. It is also important to commit yourself to a people who rag, regularly gather together to hear the explanation, proclamation, and application of God's Word. It is oftentimes in that context, in the context of community, where the Word of God is central, that God reveals Himself to us. So the ministry of the Word is an expression of God's love to you. Now, We've seen a church conflict. We've seen the ministry of the Word. Third, let's consider the ministry of deeds. Look there in verses 3 through 6, and we read these words. Uh, this is the apostles speaking to the church in Jerusalem. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, as important, and we've been talking about this right from verse 2, as important as the ministry of the Word is, the apostles also recognized that the ministry to the widows cannot be forsaken. And that's really important for us to see in this passage because you could get the sense from what I just said, looking only at verse 2, you could get the sense that, well, the really important thing is ministry of the Word. The widows, that really doesn't matter so much. They can kind of fend for themselves. What we see in the text is that that was not the attitude of the apostles at all. The apostles believed that the ministry of the Word was of ultimate importance in terms of the gifting and calling that God had placed upon their lives, their role in the life of the local church. But in terms of the overall functioning of the life of the church, the ministry to the widows was absolutely essential. It could not be forsaken. They loved the widows, and they knew that it was the church's responsibility to care for them. And so they come up with a solution. 
They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And here we see the beginnings of the New Testament office of deacon. It's clear from this passage the distinction that's made between the office of a New Testament elder, which I think the apostles here are playing the role of an elder in the early church in Jerusalem. So the New Testament office of elder and New Testament office of deacon. Both are vital, but they're different roles. According to our passage, the elder's primary responsibility is to the ministry of word and to the ministry of prayer. And the deacon's primary responsibility is to a ministry of administration and service. So the deacon's ministry is a ministry of organizing and managing various practical matters in the life of the church. And and one of the things we should note here is that as we think about the ministry of a deacon, we should in no way try to make a division between the ministry of of an elder and the ministry of a deacon as though like one is spiritual and one's not spiritual. Right? Like, like one, you're doing ministry of the Word, you're doing ministry of prayer, that's spiritual. But the other practicalities, you know, kind of stuff, that's, kind of, that's really unspiritual. That's just practical stuff. No, no. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is there are uh, several places where the gift of administration or the gift of service is referred to as a gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's very spiritual. That means when someone is working in the sound booth, or when someone's putting together a financial report, or when someone's setting up a room for a class, or when someone's changing the light bulbs, or when someone's working in the nursery, each is an act of worship to God. It's not as though those are unspiritual things, and then there's the real spiritual things. No, all of it's spiritual, and all of it is important to the larger advancing of Christ's mission through His church. Notice as well that these men are to possess certain qualifications. You see there that the apostles said, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. Now let's just look at each one of those very quickly. They're to be men of good repute. That means they are to have a good reputation inside and outside of the church. Their life is to match their profession of faith. Also we see here that they are to be men full of the Holy Spirit. That means... They are to be marked by the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It doesn't mean in any way that they're perfect men. No one is. But these evidences of the fruit of the Spirit are apparent in their life. And then they're to be men of wisdom. And I love this because this is very practical, in particular if you think about the situation that's taking place. You've got two groups of people who are in conflict with one another, and the apostles say, these men who are going to be appointed to deal with this, they need wisdom, right? They need wisdom to navigate this. F.F. Bruce writes, quote, these seven men must be qualified to deal wisely with a situation in which there were such delicate human susceptibilities to consider, end of quote. We can imagine in a situation like this, in which they are seeking to correct the uneven distribution of goods to the widows, that there are some folks who have hurt feelings. Maybe there's some folks who, in this situation who are harboring anger or bitterness. And the deacons needed to have wisdom by the Spirit of God to know when to be firm and when to be gracious and when to be forgiving. 
In this way, the deacons really, as the apostles appoint these deacons, they're really intending for these deacons to serve in such a way that it will build and foster greater unity within the life of the church. To, to, to resolve this conflict, this division, to serve in such a way that this conflict and division begins to subside and the church comes closer together in unity and oneness and love. One of the particular ways, and this is interesting, one of the particular ways I think we see this in the text as well is by the men that the apostles and the church choose to appoint. If you look at the names of the men that are listed there in, I believe it's verses 5 and 6, if you look at those names, commentators have noted that every name that is listed there has a Hellenistic background, is Greek in nature. So you have the Hebrews, right? And and in this situation, they would seemingly have a natural advantage. They're in Jerusalem, the seat of Judaism. They speak Hebrew. They have all the cultural um, tradition uh, with them. They're probably, more of them are probably from Jerusalem. So they are kind of naturally in a position of advantage in this situation. And so you know what they do? The apostles and the rest of the church do? They say, okay, we're going to relinquish our advantage and we're going to appoint Hellenistic Jews to serve the distribution to the widows so that there would be no sense that we're trying to show favoritism. That's remarkable, isn't it? That they would be willing to do that in order to foster unity, in order to foster love within the body. And the deacons are to lead this effort full of the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. The qualifications here for the deacons are so very important because we can imagine that if the wrong men had been chosen, the conflict over this distribution could have exploded. I mean, imagine a dishonest man and he starts stealing from the church. Or imagine a man's appointed who has a particular axe to grind and he's going to intentionally favor one group over another group. The apostles' plan is a success because the church rightly chose godly, spiritual, mature men. Now to broaden this application just a little bit, let me also say as we think about the role of deacons here and and how it's laid out for us in these verses, let me just say that this is not just a calling for deacons, all right? This call to serve. But in fact, as we see this office of deacon at the essence of it, at the essence of this, at the heart of this call to be a deacon is is a call to serve. This is really a call for everyone who claims the name of Christ and who is a part of the body of Christ. You know, the world tells us to find value and to find worth in being the captain of the team or being the leader of the pack or being the head man or head woman in charge. But Jesus teaches us the exact opposite. In Luke chapter 22, verses 25 to 27, Jesus says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. So they're in control, and they, they, they uh, domineer over those who are underneath them. He says, And those in authority over them are called benefactors. So they, they like titles, and they boast in their notoriety. Jesus goes on to say, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. And of course, we see the ultimate expression of this in Jesus' incarnation and then His death at the cross, where in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus humbled Himself and became a man, taking the form of a servant. servant. And, and even going beyond that, right? You remember when He washed the disciples' feet, He loved them and He served them. But even going beyond that, He humbled Himself, not just to become a servant, but even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in that sense, is the ultimate deacon. He performs the ultimate act of service in which at the cross He takes our sin and He takes the penalty and the judgment and the guilt of our sin so that we might have life and we might know blessing. As His disciples, we are all called to follow Him in a life of humility and service. And of all places, this is to be demonstrated in our relationships with one another in the life of the church. You know, this is how God has designed His church. So, so God has intentionally designed His church in such a way that if the members, individual members of the church, are not committed to one another, are not sacrificially loving and serving one another, then it starts to break down, right? Right? You know, God could have designed His church any way He pleased. He could have designed His church in such a way that He had kind of two super, two or three super leaders, and they could do everything. And if there was anywhere where this could really be played out, where a good testing ground for this experiment, it would have been in the first century in the church in Jerusalem with 11 of the apostles of Jesus Christ leading the church. I mean, could you think of a better leadership team? The 11 apostles of Jesus Christ. Jesus has spent three years investing Himself in them. But even in the church in Jerusalem, the 11 apostles could not do it all. It was too much. And so they appointed other men. And the body, the congregation took on responsibility as well. And the body began to function properly. God has designed the church so that it will not function properly. It will not operate properly. The mission will not be accomplished unless the individual members of the body are sacrificially loving and serving each other. There are folks who study church growth who say that um, if a church is to be healthy, if a church is to grow, then at least 60% of the church needs to be involved in church ministry. I would say 60%, especially as you think about the membership of a local church, 60% is a bare minimum. We should be aiming more for like 100%, right? Because this is the calling of each Christian. Each Christian is called by God to use their time, their resources, their gifts that God has given them to serve others in the body of Christ and to advance the mission of the church. I wonder, in thinking about this principle... As you put together your own life and as you make plans for yourself, as you examine your life, as you examine the time that you must devote to work and time you must devote to family and time you devote to play, does this come into the equation at all? Do you ever think about, and I know many of you do and I praise God for that, but do you ever think about how much time are we going to devote to the church, to serving the church, and to helping advance the mission of the church. 
Do you carve out time to intentionally be present on Sunday mornings for worship, to be present for home groups, to be actively engaged in serving in the life of Christ's body? This is part of what Christ is calling each one of us to, to embrace the example of the Lord Jesus who became a servant even to the point of death, to follow Him by sacrificially loving and serving each other. Now, this leads us to our fourth point, and we see the result of the apostles, um, the apostles coming to this resolution. Look there in verse 7, and we read these words. And the word of God, so this is the result. So there's the conflict. The apostles commit themselves to this first principle of the ministry of the word in prayer. They appoint deacons who are committed to this ministry of mercy and deeds. And then this is the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, one of the things I want you to see here, so we've considered kind of ministry of word, ministry of deeds. We want to bring these two things together now, think about how they relate to one another. And one of the things we see here in our text is that both the work of the elder and the work of the deacon is referred to as a ministry, as a service. Okay, so look there in chapter 6, verse 1, we read, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. Here it is, in the daily distribution. Now that word translated daily distribution is actually the Greek word uh, diakonia. It's the same word from which we get the word deacon. It means ministry or service. The word deacon means servant. And then if you look at chapter 6, verse 2, we read, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. Here it is, to serve tables. That word translated serve is actually the Greek word diakoneo, uh, which means to serve or to wait on. Again, it's in the same word group as deacon. So, so the daily distribution, the serving of tables, this is the ministry of deacons. It is a service. The word deacon means servant. But then notice in chapter 6, verse 4, in describing the work of elders, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer, and here it is, and to the ministry, it's the same word, ministry, service, comes from the same uh, group of words, the ministry of the word. And so here they point to this reality that for, for one to minister the word, to to study the Scriptures, to prepare a message, to deliver that message. It's also a ministry. It's an act of service. And what we see in our text is that both these ministries, both these acts of service are absolutely crucial to the body of Christ. We can't choose between one or the other. The two must be present. In fact, these two ministries complement one another. So the ministry of deeds flows out of the ministry of the Word. How do we know what deeds we should be committed to? How do we know what acts we should be pursuing? How do we know how we are to love one another? It's as we turn to the Scriptures and we hear the Word of God explained and applied. So ministry of deeds flow out of the ministry of the Word. And the ministry of the Word is supported by and authenticated by the ministry of deeds. So if you think about, if you think about a ministry that is only a ministry of the Word... Right? So you just have words coming out. And it could be true. It could be a lot of truth. You just have words coming out. A lot of truth. 
but there's no deeds, then what you will have is a lack of visible, tangible evidence that we actually believe this message and the message is changing us. And therefore, we will be rightly susceptible to the accusation of hypocrisy. But if you only have a ministry of deeds, if it's just a lot of good, good deeds, got a good service, a lot of good mercy, then you might do people some earthly good, but you will do them little to no eternal value. And then the church becomes much like a social activist group and not the bride of Christ which she is intended to be. There's nothing distinctly Christian. There's nothing distinctly gospel about it. But what we see in the church in Jerusalem here is that the two come together in a beautiful symmetry, right? The Word of God is proclaimed, and out of that Word now, they are serving one another in love, giving themselves to one another in mercy. And this equals a powerful gospel witness. The message they proclaim, they believe. Look at how they love each other. And you see the result in verse 7. The Word of God continues to increase. The number, of multi- the number of disciples multiplied greatly. My friends, this should be our prayer as a church. That by God's grace, we would be a church that is known both for gospel proclamation, the Word faithfully and accurately proclaimed, and gospel presence. That we are with one another in such a way and in our community with others in such a way that they experience the goodness and the blessing and the mercy and the grace that comes from people who have truly embraced the gospel. If by God's grace that happens, and I, I praise God for the evidences that it is happening, and if God increasingly does it among us, then we can trust that there will be good fruit that comes. Let's pray. God, help us to see the beauty of what you're calling us to. And Lord, may the cry of our heart truly be that we want to be a gospel people, that we want to be a people who love your word, who treasure your word, who faithfully proclaim and share your word and encourage each other with your word. And then, Father, we pray that that would result in changed lives that affect the way we relate to one another and care for one another and affect the way that we love and reach out to our community with mercy and justice. So, Father, do this work by Your Spirit. We thank You, Lord, for how You took a seemingly disastrous situation in the church in Jerusalem and turned it into a glorious gospel opportunity. Lord, at each turn that we face as a church, each difficult challenge that comes before us, may we seek you with all our hearts. And Father, we pray that we would experience your grace and power, even as the church in Jerusalem did here. Lord, we thank you for your grace in in our lives. We thank you for your calling upon us as your people. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.